Ukrainian believers need to know that we are praying. It's important to pray, but it's also important for them to know that we continue to pray for them and that we'll be with them over the long run. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Mark Elliott, founder of the East West Church and Ministry Report, shares what is happening with churches and ministries in Russia and Ukraine, and what the former Soviet Union's role was in shaping the current landscape for evangelicals in the region. This is a really insightful conversation into an area of the world that is continually in the news and on our minds. Let's listen in. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. I'm really eager to hear your perspective, Mark, on uh, what's going on in Ukraine, Russia, the surrounding areas. Um, But first, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be so connected and knowledgeable about this area? Well, I'm a retired professor of European history uh, with a focus on Soviet and post-Soviet politics and church history. Um, Since the 1990s, I've also been involved quite a bit in ministry projects in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, My first visit to the region was 1974, and my most recent visit was uh, in 2019, just before the pandemic. Um, What led you actually to create this East-West Church and Ministry Report? Well, I was at a East European ministry meeting uh, at a hotel near O'Hare Airport in Chicago, and Dr. Peter Kuzmich, who was at that time president of Evangelical Theological Seminary in Croatia, said that uh, we needed some kind of clearinghouse for information on church life and missions in Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union, and he said, I think Mark Elliott ought to edit it. So that's how it got started. And then after the meeting was over, Billy Melvin came up to me, then head of the National Association of Evangelicals, and said, I think I can help you get some grants to start this. So that's actually how it started, and I edited it for uh, 25 years. Hmm. That's a beautiful story of collaboration to get things going. Um, now, clearly, you know, there's just a lot of attention throughout the world on what's going on in Ukraine and the, the devastation that's unfolded, and uh, our hearts are um, rent by it. Um, but it's not often covered uh, with respect to religion. Uh, the geopolitical situation is dominant. Um, so give us a little bit of background information. What what role did religion play in the invasion of Ukraine? Be happy to. Um, there are two main things that I would like to share on that point. One is in 2021, just really a year before the invasion began, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church gained uh, independent recognition from the ecumenical patriarch, Bartholomew. And this was uh, a move that was deeply opposed by the Russian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, Patriarch Kirill and Putin specifically and vociferously opposed this move because it seemed to them like it was gonna separate the Ukrainian church from the Russian church. Um, Another factor is basically Russian religious propaganda 
which played a role. Uh, the propaganda line is that uh, Russia is a spiritual bastion against Western decadence and immorality and secularism. And this propaganda claim is in spite of the fact that Russia has very high levels of alcoholism and domestic abuse and very low levels of church attendance. In fact, much lower levels of church attendance than the rest of Europe and certainly lower than church attendance in Ukraine. So this uh, myth of Russian superior spirituality is just part of the Russian propaganda line. Wow, that's um, fascinating. Clearly, there is a religious component to the ideologies that are at play. And um, that sense of independence of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, can you describe a little bit more uh, about just orthodoxy um, and orthodox religion so our hearers have some shared knowledge to understand the dynamics that you're describing? Sure. Well, uh, of course, it's a big story, but I'll try and just uh, encapsulate a, a sentence or two on the subject. There's a huge debate on the uh, origin of Christianity among the Eastern Slavic peoples. And Eastern Slavic includes Russians and Ukrainians. And back in the 10th century, the Prince of Kiev converted to Christianity, and both the Ukrainian church and the Russian church claimed this as their beginning. So it, it's really kind of a, a sad a competition over who has the rightful claim to uh, the Prince Volodymyr or Prince Vladimir story, Volodymyr being Ukrainian, Vladimir being Russian. Uh, when I was at Wheaton College in 1988, uh, there are lots of Russian and Ukrainian immigrants in Chicago. And I wrote a little article called Whose Millennium Is It? 1988 was the thousandth anniversary of the coming of Christianity to the Eastern Slavs. So that gives a little bit of the background. Wow. We are talking about centuries old issues here that are coming at play. That, that's really, really helpful, Mark. Thank you. Um, before we dive more into some of the tragedy uh, that is unfolding, um, what are some of the stories of hope that are coming from this area? Well, one th thing that I find hopeful is the determined resistance that the Ukrainian nation, which is fighting for its freedom, uh, that's inspiring to me, the resilience of the Ukrainian people. And then I've been uh, very inspired and I find hopeful the level of Western assistance for humanitarian aid. Uh, I've written pretty extensively about this and can't go into detail now. But it's a very inspiring story, just literally hundreds and hundreds of churches and organizations in the West are helping Ukrainians. But uh, I'd like to give one specific example of a sign of hope that I'm aware of. Uh, Sergei Timchenko is the director of a Christian counseling ministry in Kiev. And when the war broke out, um, he and his staff of 25 were scattered to the four winds. Um, some are in Western Ukraine now, some are in Poland, other countries, but they continue to do their ministry, some in person among refugees in the West, Ukrainian refugees, some on Zoom. Um, and they also have shifted a great deal to humanitarian aid relief. 
churches all over Ukraine and Poland and Romania, for example, overnight became um, overnight housing for people, sometimes with 24 hours or less notice. But let me just give you one example of humanitarian relief work that Sergei Temchenko did uh, and is doing. Uh, recently, he traveled to Kupiansk, and if you've been following the news, you know that that's a town recently liberated by Ukrainian forces. It had been under Russian occupation. It's in the Luhansk region, part of the famous Donbass region. And Sergei went into an apartment building, one of the high-rise Soviet-era apartment buildings in which so many people in the post-Soviet world live. And he found elderly people there. Most of the younger people had fled. And these elderly people were living without lights, without electricity, without water, without heat, without medicine. I mean, it was really overwhelming to him. Some of these apartments are on the seventh to 12th floor with no working elevator for elderly people. Yet here was Sergei at a situation that's close to the front lines, close to the shelling, and he's uh, distributing aid packages to these elderly people. So something like that I find hopeful and inspiring. Wow, there is hope in that, but the, the, the hope is within this context of heartbreak um, to even know that in this particular way, the the deep devastation that is unfolding is in fact heartbreaking. And, and you've already alluded to a couple of issues, counseling, humanitarian aid, and some of these practical ways, but what would you say are some of the biggest needs uh, for the churches in Ukraine? Well, I think we need to continue to provide relief assistance through um, contributions, but also I think prayer is such an important part of the need there. Um, Ukrainian believers need to know that we are praying. It's important to pray, but it's also important for them to know that we continue to pray for them and that we'll be with them over the long run, because right now it's looking like this could drag on too long. You mentioned uh, the scattering to the four winds of these counselors um, and mentioned Poland. So um, how are the churches in Poland and other neighboring countries responding to Ukrainian needs, uh, particularly maybe refugees? It's really a very inspiring story. Historically, Ukrainians and Poles have been at odds. I'm talking about centuries of conflict, but you'd never know it from February 2022 on. I mean, since February the Polish nation has opened its doors like no other country on earth. There are an estimated 1.2 million Ukrainian refugees in Poland right now. Uh, uh, maybe 14 million Ukrainian refugees total, over half outside the country, and Poland has taken in the largest number. But many other countries have stepped forward too. Czech Republic, Romania, Germany, many others. And even tiny Moldova, which is, some argue, the poorest country in all of Europe, has taken in more than its share of Ukrainian refugees, more than most countries per capita. It's really inspiring. That must produce uh, not only inspiration, but real challenges, uh, whether in infrastructure or how to accommodate that. So describe a, a little bit of what the needs might be. 
that come along with that really inspiring response? Well, it's just about everything imaginable. Many people left literally with nothing. They've lost their homes. Many have lost family members. Uh, many are injured. Um, no housing, no food, no shelter, no future that they know of. So uh, you name it and they need it. And like I say, it's uh, really an amazing story of Western Christians stepping forward. I, I couldn't be prouder of faithful in this respect. It really does seem like a comprehensive gospel response, you know, in word, indeed, um, full of faith and faithfulness. It, it is inspiring. Um, when we think about our situation here in America, what can we learn as we um, as we consider our responses to refugees, Ukrainian or otherwise, uh, who are coming here to America? Well, I think we can learn about what amazing generosity looks like. Not that we haven't stepped forward in a number of instances, um, but let me just give you the example of one elderly Polish widow and, and what she did to help, which I find encouraging and inspiring. 70 years old, living in a two-room apartment in Poland, she opened up her apartment to two women with their children, Ukrainian refugees, and she gave the refugees the larger of her two rooms. I find something like that really humbling. And it makes me want to think again and more deeply how my wife and I can help. Um, and if I could just add a sentence to that, my wife and I were involved with helping settle a family of Vietnamese refugees back in the 70s. And then in the early 80s, uh, two men from Haiti who were refugees. And we learned anew what Jesus taught us, that it's better to give than receive. And I think in hindsight, part of the explanation for that is that when we give, we learn that giving is receiving. We get such a blessing. Uh, so the blessing goes both ways. That is a real challenge as we think about our, our country, despite um, whatever difficulties we may be facing, we are incredibly blessed with resources and the American church and American Christians really have uh, an opportunity, a calling of responsibility to rise up uh, in receiving those who have been displaced in such um, horrific ways. And, and if if folks want to take some next steps um, to learn about next steps or even to actually engage in some ways, what, what are some resources you would recommend to learn about these topics? Well. On the church front, uh, there are two serial publications that I would recommend. Uh, one is Occasional Papers on Religion in Eastern Europe. I know that's a mouthful. I'll say it again. Occasional Papers on Religion in Eastern Europe. It's free online. If you Google that title, it will come up. They've uh, done a great deal of reporting on the Ukraine crisis and the religious dimensions in particular of this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then I think my own former publication, the East-West Church and Ministry Report, I think is doing a good job. I couldn't be prouder of my successor, Geraldine Fagan, who is editing the East-West Church Report, and it's $23 a year. So that's um, information sources 
that deal with the church. But uh, for those who want to follow uh, the developments in terms of the fighting, I'll just quickly mention a couple of sources. I really like uh, In Moscow's Shadow, which is by Mark Galeotti. I'm, I'm talking about a couple of podcasts right now. He's a British scholar of Russia, and I think his insights are quite good. Again, that's In Moscow's Shadows. And then uh, I regularly listen to a podcast called Ukraine the Latest, which is produced by London's uh, Telegraph newspaper. And um, another podcast I really like is called Russia-Ukraine War Update. And that's a, another podcast by a group with a funny name. It's called Malcontent News. I know it sounds like a joke, but that's actually the title of the sponsor. And then for something that's free online that can be obtained daily by email is called the Russian Offensive Campaign Assessment. Now, I know that sounds awfully secular, and it is, but we can learn a lot from it in terms of where the war is on a daily basis. And that's um, produced by a group called the Institute for the Study of War. It's a Washington, D.C. think tank. And all of those, in fact, all of these sources I've mentioned to you are available at no cost except for the East-West Church Report. Thank you. Um, what are what are some of the ways in which you are seeing believers from the U.S. helping in this situation? Well, in terms of immediate help on the front line, Europe is in the best position to help because the geographic proximity dictates that it's easier for Europeans to help directly than for Americans. And our major contribution so far has been in terms of humanitarian aid. Yes, some Americans have gone over, uh, but that sometimes can be a mixed blessing depending on whether or not we have the needed skills and language abilities. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, on the other hand, um, and I say these are an exception to the rule, but there are some things that we haven't done right that we can correct. For example, sometimes American aid workers or other countries from the West can um, work with Ukrainian refugees with the idea of giving them advice. And I don't think advice is so much um, what's needed right now is compassion, uh, listening ear, prayer, hugs even, things like that, rather than trying to lecture people on what, what sort of advice uh, we want to give to them. Uh, again, those are the exceptions to the rule. Uh, another problem sometimes with Western people is the attitude the West knows best, um, which can really be a stumbling block to being the most effective in terms of helping. Hmm. A lot of what you're describing is um, something that we should know from the interpersonal level uh, and just putting it more in the national responses. I mean, when you're encountering someone who's grieving the loss of someone, it's probably not the time to do a lot of instruction. I mean, you just need to be present and demonstrate right. the solidarity of presence. And so it's really a helpful reminder that there's some basic human God-given ways in which we are designed um, to help people who are experiencing trauma and crisis. Um, so thank you. Um, you know, you, you've you've mentioned prayer. 
um, as a need. So what is it that you are praying? I mean, what is your hope? What is your prayer as we draw this conversation to a close? What, what is your prayer for not only the Ukrainians, but for Russian believers in this next decade? Yeah. Well, my hope and prayer for Russian believers is that they will speak out against this Russian invasion. And I know that's easier for somebody in the comfort of America to say, because speaking out can be dangerous in Russia. But um, that, that's a need. Now, there have been some um, evangelicals and some Orthodox who have spoken out against the war, but they are in a decided minority. And shamefully, some evangelical leaders in Russia have even publicly defended the war, which is, I think, tragic. So my hope and prayer is that Russians will, who are believers, well, for the whole country for that matter, will rethink what they're doing and uh, believing in terms of Russian propaganda. propaganda. And for Ukrainians, my, my hope for these believers is that they won't lose heart, that they will continue to feel the presence of the Lord, that he will continue to be their strength and shield, their courage. Because um, again, it's easy for us to pontificate in this way from the comfort of the West, but my prayer is that they will have courage far beyond their human capacity and that they will feel the comfort of the Lord. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite verses, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. That is a good word. Our guest on today's conversation has been Mark Elliott. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Mark. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.